Our text is in Luke chapter number 3. Luke chapter number 3 for our text today as we continue now in our series through the life of Christ that will lead us up to that special time of year when we think about the death and resurrection of Christ. Luke chapter 3 for our text today. Most preachers try to behave in a normal way when they preach, but not everybody. When I was a young boy, the little church we attended on Fletcher Chapel Road over here occasionally had fill-in preachers. And one I recall was a fellow who got up and started preaching, and after about two minutes he was screaming at the top of his lungs. Now I was probably about six years old, and when he started screaming I covered my ears. My mother was not happy with me. And she reached over and grabbed my arm and pulled it down. And later on in the car, that's when we used to get it in the car. (laughs) On the way home, she said, don't you ever cover your ears when somebody's preaching. So I asked a simple question. A little boy would ask, why does he scream so loud? And she couldn't answer that question. (laughs) But I never covered my ears again. (laughs) The next time that preacher came, he preached a sermon. Same way at the top of his lungs about black people being inferior to white people. And I think that the whole congregation should have covered their ears for that one. He never came back again. But the best preacher I ever heard was an old fellow named George Houston. And he had worked for 40 years on the railroad. And he preached a few times at our little church just around the corner. And he was a pretty exciting preacher. And I remember as we were singing hymns before the sermon, he stood on the platform and he kept hugging himself. And as the songs were sung, he squeezed himself over and over, squeezed himself. And I remember wondering, why is he hugging himself? Well, he got up to preach and he said, Do you wonder why I'm doing this? And I was a little kid. I said, yeah. (laughs) I didn't even get yelled at for that one. He said, I'm just trying to get Jesus closer to me, which was a good answer, I thought. Well, he started to preach, and he was exciting to watch and to listen to. He was preaching about Ezekiel and the dry bones. And they had a little tiny little pulpit there. And it had a fluorescent light screwed to the pulpit uh, with a flexible bar over it. Like they used to have in the old days. And he said, when Ezekiel preached, the earth shook and he pounded on the pulpit. And that light went like that. And I thought, well, that's cool. (laughs) He told a story about how he got a new pair of false teeth. And he... He was preaching away, and he used to swing his arms a lot when he talked. And uh, he said, my false teeth came out and flew through the air. But I just grabbed them in midair and put them in my pocket. He said, nobody ever knew the difference. (laughs) Well, exciting preachers like that are few and far between. And when you're a kid, a man like that is pretty exciting to see and to hear. In our text today, we're going to meet one of the very exciting preachers. And he's exciting to see, he's exciting to hear, 
and we'll meet this man named John, John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3 now, I begin reading at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonius, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came unto all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. So John the Baptist had spent most of his life up to this point uh, living alone in the wilderness. And now he comes out of the wilderness to the Jordan River. There are no synagogues there. There's no churches there. Uh, and all of his preaching was outside in the open air. He didn't wear the fancy clothes that most preachers of that day wore. Uh, most rabbis had these long flowing robes with fringe around the bottom of the robe. Very fancy. And they sewed extra pleats into their robes so that their robes were big and full and so that they swished when they walked by. And the more pleats in your robe, the more holy you were. At least that's what they thought. But not John the Baptist. No fancy robes for him. He wore clothes made from camel hair. Rough. All right, stiff stuff. And he wrapped a leather band around his waist. And on top of that, he ate locusts, little bugs, and wild honey. Now, just that would be enough to get to your attention, wouldn't it? You'd say, let's go look at that guy. I'd like to watch a man eat locusts, you know. Protein, I guess. So, Dr. Luke, though, paints a sinister picture in the list of names in verse 1 or 2. Now some people say he's just trying to identify a time period by telling us who was in charge. But there's much more to it than that. Here is a list of names that stand in infamy of some of the most evil men ever to be in charge anywhere. Herod the king who would put Jesus on trial in his court and mock Jesus openly and put a white robe of a candidate on Jesus and with a laugh said, look, he's running for office. And then Pontius Pilate, who's recorded as saying, I find no fault in Jesus, so go ahead and crucify him. And then Annas and Caiaphas, two high priests who, in the temple who conspired to murder Jesus. And they politically moved against Pontius Pilate to force him to sentence Jesus to death. These four men put Jesus on, con on trial, condemned him to die, who was the only innocent man that ever lived. The Roman governor, the Jewish king, 
the high priests, some of the most violent and evil men in history are in charge of the government, in charge of the court system, in charge of the temple, and in charge of the religious system in Israel. And things have reached an all-time low as hatred rules the day. Pilate hates the Jews. The Jews hate Pilate. And in the temple, the ruling class, the rabbis, are the Pharisees who look down their noses at everybody else. And if you happen to come from Galilee, like Jesus, they consider you to be little more than scum of the earth. And so, if you go to the temple as a regular citizen, the rabbis consider you inferior. The priests are into making money off of you. They cheat people at the money changer tables and they overcharge you for a sacrifice animal. Later on, Jesus himself would walk into that temple and he says, this place is a den of thieves. That was the temple. Annas and Caiaphas used their money to bribe the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to appoint them as high priest. Now, my friends, how would you like to go to church there? Huh? Greedy men, full of hatred, run the place. What do you think it was like to attend services in that temple? Distasteful? Downright repulsive. Who wants it? It's just not a warm and friendly place. And suddenly, out, away from all the graft and corruption, somewhere in the open air, out by the Jordan River, there's a preacher wearing camel skins and eating locusts. And preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Now the gist of his sermons are this. <coughs> you need to repent and you need to find forgiveness for your sins. So come down into the Jordan River and confess your sins as you stand next to me. And then be baptized in the water to prove that you really are repenting. <coughs> he becomes a local sensation. Everybody goes to see and hear John the Baptist. Pharisees, scribes, rabbis, the religious leader of the day from Jerusalem, they go to see and hear John the Baptist. Now remember, those people, those religious leaders, they think that they are perfect. And the last thing they intend to do is repent. And especially if someone suggests they repent, they're going to say, we are descendants of Abraham. We're God's chosen people. We've got it all together. And we don't need to repent. Especially we don't need to be baptized by you, John. So John speaks to them down in verse 7. He said to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourself, We have Abraham to our father. For I say to you that God is able these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Oh, <laughs> my friends, this is an exciting preacher, boy. He calls them a generation of vipers. And we'd say in our language, hey, you poisonous snakes. <laughs> he says if God wanted children of Abraham and reaches over and picks up a stone off the ground, he could make one out of this stone. He doesn't need you and your kind. Wow. Wow, that's telling him, John. That's telling him what's up. And what he said was, you're like poisonous snakes. And that's why the common people loved John, because they knew what it was like back at the temple. He told those big shots off. He said, you're like poisonous snakes. You spread hate like poisonous venom, and your pride and arrogance will destroy you. Verse 9, now also the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. He said, you're going to be destroyed by God when he cuts your tree down. And that would happen 40 years later when the Romans came in and destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem and their whole system collapsed. But, but, listen to this, verse 10. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? Now imagine it. As a common person, you go to that temple, everybody treats you like trash, and you come to see John the Baptist, and he says, Repent. And be baptized. This John is easy to talk to because finally somebody will answer your question. And they ask, what should we do, John? Tell us what to do. My friends, in life's stresses, in life's trials, in the regular ebb and flow of life's troubles and difficulties, we all need to ask that question Tell us what to do. What do we do? After we repent, after we confess our sins and get baptized, then what? What do we do? Verse 11, John answers, He answered and saith to them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. He that had meat, let him do likewise. John answers their question, Look around you. And show love to people in need. And if you got two coats, give one away to somebody who doesn't have one at all. And the same with your food. Share it. Show love and kindness. Let that be the way you live after you repent. Verse 12. Then came also publicans to be baptized. Said unto him, Master, what shall we do? He said unto them, exact no more than which is appointed unto you. Tax collectors are publicans, and they come. So what should we do after we get baptized? He said, after you repent, don't overcharge. Be honest. Don't cheat people anymore. There's another group come, verse 14. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, what should we do? He said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely. 
be content with your wage. Even Roman soldiers come to hear John and they say, what should we do? He says, be fair, not violent, and be content. Repentance is a good thing. We need to do it. How do we live our lives after that? And they finally found somebody to answer their question. Now the Bible says this about John, that he turned the hearts of the fathers toward the children, and then he turned the hearts of the children towards the fathers. Or in other words, we'd say he healed families. Boy, we need that, huh? He encouraged people to love each other. Why? Because it's what should happen after repentance. Now, verse 15. All the people were in expectation. All men mused in their hearts of John whether he were the Christ or not. People began to wonder, is this strange, exciting fella the promised Messiah? Is this the one we've been waiting for? Could it be that John the Baptist is the one that was sent from God? He sure is outside of all that mess in Jerusalem. He's completely independent of it. I wonder if it's the Messiah. John answers their question in verse 16. John answers saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I come, at the latchet of whose shoes I am not unworthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. No, I'm not the Messiah. But he's about to arrive. So I'm getting ready. I'm preparing the way, paving a road for the Messiah's arrival. And here's the difference. Let me explain it, John said. Here's the difference between the Messiah who's about to come and me. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with fire. Now, my friends, we need to ask a question. It's a very, very important question. What's the difference between water and fire? John's baptism, he said, is water. Jesus' baptism is fire. So what's the difference between water and fire? Well, when I was a young boy, I reached my arm over a gas stove that was left on, and my arm caught on fire. I saw the flames jump up off my arm, and I screamed, fire, fire. Mom, quick thinking, grabbed her sweater off the chair and wrapped it around my arm and put out the fire. It only lasted a couple of seconds. But I can tell you in no uncertain terms, fire is much more intense than water. Fire is powerful, intense. Fire works quickly and makes permanent changes. I still carry the scar of that moment I was on fire more than 60 years later. 
What's the difference between John the Baptist and Jesus? The difference between water and fire. John will ask you to repent and to confess your sins. And John will say, love one another and share your food and be honest and be fair and be content. And that's all good. It's good advice. But Jesus, oh, he can do so much more than John. He can wash away your sins. He can bury them in the deepest sea. He can give you eternal life. He can fill you with power and with energy to do his will. He can give you peace that passes all understanding. He can give you joy, and he described it as fullness of joy. And he can open your mind and give you clarity of thought and help you understand life, help you to know God. And he comes to us with an intensity that makes John the Baptist look dull. And Jesus said it, and John would describe it himself. Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. Jesus must be the focus, the active ingredient in your heart to bring about transformation and permanent change. Like a fire that burns intensely, it forever changes what it touches. So Jesus is to you and me a fire that we feel, that we know the intensity of the power. Jesus is the fire and the intensity and the power of the Holy Ghost entering into our hearts, changing who we are. And old John the Baptist explained it in a good way. I'm water, but he's fire. He's fire. Then one day, Jesus came to be baptized. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass, Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And the voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So John's work ended that day. He decreased. And Jesus' work, when he got baptized, began, and he increased, and he got baptized, not repenting like everybody else, but praying. He was praying. And the Holy Spirit, it said, came down and entered into Jesus. And it says, his Father spoke out loud from heaven, You are my beloved son. You please me in all you do. The baptism of fire, the Holy Ghost, coming on us, changing our lives. It has a purpose that we would live our lives like Jesus to please God. When you come and ask the question, people ask John, or that is, what should we do? You will always know that we are living right when we please God. So I ask the simple question today, does your life please God? I pray he's well pleased with us. Let the fire come in all of its intensity that we might be pleasing to God. May God bless you as you do the things that are pleasing to him. So Jesus started that day in the Jordan River to be seen in public. And as he begins his work, 
Or remember way last week as he's about to begin his father's business? He is pleasing to God right from the start. May we get to the point where our lives are pleasing to God all the time. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you how it inspires us to believe, to trust in Jesus with all our hearts, and to know, Lord, that what you want from us, that we should be pleasing to you. So we ask that we would be pleasing, useful in your hand, helpful in your work of spreading the gospel. Bless us, Lord, that we might be pleasing in your hand. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, I'd like you to turn with me, if you will, to hymn number 286. Hymn number 286, standing as we sing, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. Standing as we sing, 286, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. Page 286. that you would come into our hearts. We ask that you would burn us like fire and take away those things that 
have so taken us aside from you that take us off track in our life. Change us permanently. Help us to see and know that God was here and we pray that others around us would know that God has touched us, changed us, melted away all those old things and brought in new things. Bring a fire into our heart and into our lives and help us to live for you, we pray. We ask for these things and we ask for protection and care over all these people. We know of all the needs and all the things that are out there, and so we just ask that you put your hand especially on every person in this place. Bring them safely back to this place. We thank you for the opportunities we have through this week. We pray that we would take them, not waste them. Tell others about you. Come back to be filled again with your spirit, filled up with your love. We thank you for all these things in your name.